Well, good morning again. So glad you're here. I'll ask one more time, if you would, invite you to stand as we read the text this morning. We'll be in Revelation 11 today. We're starting to move through here, which is good. We'll start off with a a prayer, a prayer of commitment called the Shema. It helps us refocus ourselves, get us ready to hear from the text this morning. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Revelation 11. This is the word of God. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because that's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is frequently called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood to their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up in heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified, but gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past, and the third woe is coming soon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's been a historic, heavy week, if you've been following the news. I remember last Sunday I was sitting in a pew, we were getting ready, and I was kind of looking at my phone and getting the updates of what was going on uh, on the other side of the world. Because on last Sunday, after 20 years, an Islamic organization called the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan. Now the aim of this group is to impose their interpretation of Islamic law on the country and to remove foreign influences. Now, previously, they had placed violent rules and censorship on anything opposed to their beliefs. And the fear that day, one week ago, was that this was the beginning of reality once again in this war-torn country. And this week has gone by. Reports are now already out that many have feared, of already reports of serious human rights violations, executions, 
and revenge killings. And then you read Revelation. You read about trumpets of bitterness and darkness and locust armies and death. You read about these trumpets that we've been looking at for the past month or so. And you read about these images of what life looks like when the world is given over to its sin. And you read about these judgments and that they do not bring people to repentance. We look at that in chapter 9. The trumpets blow. God gives us over to our sin. And yet the nations still do not repent. Then you begin reading about what's happening across the world. And things start to make sense. We often, because what happens is for us, is we often read Revelation in a state of relative security and contentment, don't we? And so things like Revelation doesn't make sense to us. But much of the Bible is written to people who are not in power, but in persecution. Not in the majority, but in the margins. Not winning, but waiting. And last week in chapter 10, we spoke about living in the days when the seventh angel is about to blow his trumpet. We talked about that this last final trumpet would come. The six have already been blown, and yet we are living in those days. Revelation 10 says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. We're in these days before the last trumpet blast. The mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. We talked about living in the in-between. The in-between between those two, that dead space right in the middle, the already but not yet, the kingdom that has come and yet not in its fullness, right there in that scroll that's being opened. We live right there in the in-between. And as we wait, we were told that we are called to continue to prophesy anew, just like the prophets of old. We are to now come and take up the mantle And begin to continue to announce to the world the mystery of God. And now we're here in chapter 11. And now we get to hear, now we learn what this mystery is. We get to learn what's in that blank space on the scroll and took and ate last week. How are we to announce this? What is this mystery? What are we prophesying anew? And in typical Revelation fashion, we're given pictures. Two pictures, two models, two witnesses. So let's take a look at these witnesses and figure out what's going on here. Well, Revelation 11.6, they give us probably our, our best descriptive of it. It says this, these two witnesses, they have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. We do this a lot with Revelation. We play the game, where have we heard this before, right? Our, we, we look back first into the past to give us a sense of what's being talked about, what are these images, what are these references that he's making, which then help us understand in the present. So again, let's play. Who else in Israel's history had the power to shut up the heavens so that it would not rain? Elijah. Elijah had that power. Elijah, at the time, Israel was ruled by Ahab, King Ahab. And the text says that he was the ultimate evil king. 
more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any that had gone before him. And so God raises up a counterpart to Ahab, the ultimate prophet who would be his antitype, Elijah. If, if Ahab was the worst of the worst, Elijah would then would counter that by being the best of the best. And for his coming out party, Elijah announces a drought over the land. In 1 Kings 17, as the Lord, he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Years go by. And in the middle of these years that go by where he shuts the heavens up and no rain comes, he begins to prophesy to Israel and to Ahab and say, no, this is not the way. Next, and this one's a little easier. Who else in Israel's history had the power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague? We've been talking about this a lot. Moses. Deuteronomy sums it up nicely. It says, since then, no prophet has risen in Israel. He calls him a prophet. No prophet has risen in, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. So throughout Israel's history, when you think of the greatest lampstands, the greatest prophets, the greatest witnesses, Moses and Elijah certainly were at the top of the ladder. They were in a tier all their own. It was Elijah and Moses. They were the greatest witnesses Israel had ever seen. So it makes a lot of sense here. Oh yeah, we know those guys. The ones that stop the rain and send the plagues. The Elijah and Moses, that's them. Yeah, God's going to send them. That makes sense. It says that fire, in our text today, that fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Remember Elijah's most famous story, right? The duel between the prophets of Baal and him, and he builds the altar, and he says, all right, you, for, with your words, you sing, you pray, you do all that you can. See if Baal will come down and send fire from the heavens to consume the altar. And they chant and sing and pray all day long, and nothing happens. In fact, I love, I love in the story, uh, Elijah begins to gloat. If you remember the story, he actually begins to gloat and kind of poke fun at them. He says, you, got, you better shout louder. Maybe your God is sleeping. You got to just kind of wake him up, right? He actually gloats over his enemies. He gloats over these prophets who are trying to do that. Shout louder, he says. Perhaps Baal is asleep. Finally, Elijah steps up, and with one word from his mouth, fire comes from heaven and consumes the altar, and the prophets are killed. Bang! He actually does that a couple more times later on. There's a group of, uh, of uh, soldiers that come up, and they say, hey, the king wants you. Get down here. He goes, oh, if I'm, if, if, if I'm a prophet of the Lord, then I will tell God to send fire down him. Fifty... 50 uh, officers are like burned. He actually does it a couple times. So by the third group of 50 that show up, they fall to their knees and are like, listen, dude, okay, like we get it. We're not demanding it. We're just asking politely if you'd come with us. Is that, is that cool? Fire from his mouth. You read that and you go, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's Moses and Elijah. Moses commands with his mouth the pillar, the fire. 
to go behind Israel, to block them, to shield them from Egypt. They're attacking and pressing them against the Red Sea. Fire coming from their mouth and devouring their enemies. Oh yeah, we know those guys. That's Elijah. That's Moses. And we read this prophetic, fiery word is not meant for the temple of God or the altar of God or for the worshipers of God. This prophecy are for those who will trample the holy city for 42 months. And it says, I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. So it's not for Israel. I've sent my prophets to the nations to proclaim this, this judgment, to proclaim this warning And it says that they're going to have a free reign for 42 months or 1,260 days. You see, there's this period of time when the nations will trample the holy city and its witnesses and its people, its worshipers. And these two witnesses will prophesy against it. Now, for uh, for our math majors in the room, 42 months is how many days? If we assume... If we assume a month is 30 days, roughly, you know, sometimes 28, but roughly if, if it's 30 days, how many days is, two, is 42 months? 1,260 days. So it's, it's like this little, it's like this little uh, clue or this hint. It's saying we're talking about the same time frame here, 42 months or 1,260. There's this time where there's going to be this moment where the, the prophets are going to come and they're going to let people know. Now, we are told elsewhere in Scripture that remember Elijah's drought, that he said, I'm going to send this drought, I'm going to shut up the rain, and for years it's not going to rain. And in this time, that's when he's going to prophesy. That's when he's going to do his thing. That's when the fire comes down. That's when all this amazing stuff happened. We're actually told elsewhere in Scripture exactly how long Elijah's drought was. It says that it lasted three and a half years. Luke chapter 4, it says this, no prophet, Jesus is speaking, no prophet is accepted in his his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the skies were shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in the region of Sidon. He he didn't go to God. He went to the nations. And so he shut up this, this, the rain, he, he, he kept it, he, he kept this drought going. And it lasted three, uh, three years, three and a half years. How long is three and a half years? It's 1,260 days. It's 42 months. So when you read about this guy whose fire is coming from his mouth and is shutting out the rain and he's prophesying for wink, wink, 42 months, wink, wink, 1,260 days, everyone would have been like, that's Elijah. We can do the math. We, we know how long that is. And so that begins to represent the season and this time where the prophets are prophesying, trying to bring people back to the Lord. And just for good measure, so that we don't miss it, it says that later on in our text today, later on, that a voice came, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up in heaven in a cloud. Who do you know in the Old Testament that didn't die, but went up to heaven, got called up to heaven in a cloud? Elijah. 
Elijah doesn't die. He gets sucked up, somehow sucked up into the cloud. Second Kings, as they were walking and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire, of horses of fire, appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Moses also was said to go up somewhere to die. There's like this, this, this folklore, because nobody knows where it says in the, in the Bible. Nobody knows where Moses was buried. In Deuteronomy 34, earlier it says, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebu from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across the Jericho. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab as the Lord had said. It goes on then to say, and nobody knows where he's buried. And so there's this, this kind of legend that started to build in Israel that Moses went up into the sky and died. But he just, he, he went up, he got called up and nobody knows where he's buried. So you read of two witnesses with the power to shut up the heavens and strike the earth with every kind of plague, with fire coming from their mouths, to prophesy to the nations for 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, and then be taken up to heaven, you know that these are the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. Elijah and Moses. That's who God's going to send. And their ministries were to show God's power and his might and its judgment. Fire coming down from heaven. The heavens shutting up. Fire coming down. Plagues striking the earth. And after three weeks of these trumpets of bitterness and darkness and locust armies and death, we're ready for this, aren't we? We're ready for some fire to come down. We've, we've kind of had to go through the ringer a little bit with these trumpets. We had to go through the ringer a little bit with the seals before it, haven't we? It's been kind of doom and gloom for a while. We're ready for some Elijah action. We're ready for some fire to come down. Yes, you could tell. You could, I could just see it. Yes, as they're reading this. The two witnesses are here. Elijah and Moses, they've showed back up. And man, they are sending some fire. Yeah, we're ready for that. We're ready for someone to kick some butt, take names, before this seventh trumpet sounds. But then in verse 7 of our passage today, the story takes an unexpected turn. A beast comes from the abyss and attacks and overpowers and kills them. That's, wait a minute, that's not their story. Their bodies lay in shame and disgrace. That, that never happened. Every tribe and people and language and nations, they gloat over them. No, 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 that's, that's not that. No, no, it's, it's Elijah. Elijah's the one that's doing the gloating. That's the story. He's the one gloating because they're worshiping gods that are not true gods. What do you mean it's, it's, it's the witnesses that, that do that? But, after three and a half days, interesting little connection there, they stand to their feet. And there's a severe earthquake, and some die, while others give glory to the God of heaven. Now stop for a minute. Think about the story so far. Moses' plagues, Elijah's fire, 
the trumpet judgments do not generate repentance. We've said that over and over again. In the end, Moses only leads two people into the promised land. And after three and a half years, this is what uh, Elijah laments in 1 Kings. It's been, it's been the drought is over. In fact, the fire has come down. He's won the contest. And yet he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Zeal is a good word for Elijah. Fire from his mouth. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. But the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. After six trumpets, mankind still did not repent of the work of their hands. Even after all the fire, and all the plagues, and all the trumpets, mankind still does not turn and repent. And then the story shifts. Instead of bringing death, these witnesses, they die. And instead of gloating, they are gloated over. And upon seeing their death and resurrection, People do give glory to God. That's what gets through to them. It wasn't the fire. And it wasn't the trumpets. And it wasn't the plagues. It was witnessing these two witnesses die and then stand to their feet. That is what brings glory. That is what wakes them up. That is what gets through to them. It's almost as if these witnesses only had half the equation and needed another witness, a faithful one, to come and show them the way. And he did. Because this faithful witness stood with Moses and Elijah. Take a look here in Luke 9. He took Peter, John, and James with him and he went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, who? Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. And what did they do? They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about his departure. You see, this faithful witness would allow the enemy to attack and overpower and kill him. This faithful witness's body would lie in shame and disgrace. This faithful witness would be gloated over, but after three days, he stood to his feet. And there was a severe earthquake, and some died while others gave glory to the God of heaven. Take a look, Matthew 28. There was a violent earthquake, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And then, friends, the faithful witness went up to heaven in a cloud. Just as De John declares at the very beginning of this letter, in the very first verses of Revelation, almost to set us up 
for this moment right now, John declares Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. It's not the trumpets. It's not the fire. It's not the plagues. It's the faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And then those who will follow in his footsteps to go and do it too. Because now we as the church, the lampstands, the temple, the altar, the worshipers of God, who he has measured and secured, he tells us to now go and do it too. Acts 1.8, you know it well. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, friends, we live in the in-between. The 1,260 days, the 42 months, the three and a half years, the time before the seventh trumpet sounds. And we saw last week, we are, prof- we are called to prophesy anew, to take up the mantle of the prophets, Moses and, I- and Elijah, but to follow the footsteps of a greater prophet a faithful witness to die and then to stand again. You see, the word for witness in the Greek is martus, or maybe more commonly, a martyr. Literally at its, at its core, the word for witness is to, is to be a martyr. The greatest witness you can have is to give your life for something greater than yourself. That's why they call them the martyrs, the witnesses. Look and see, following the footsteps of the one who did it first. God's kingdom is revealed when the nations see the church imitating the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the fiery words of our mouths, the church, are of peace and sacrifice Paul talks about this in Romans 12. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. He will make things right. You don't have to, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You see, our fire does not come through judgment and anger and fighting for what's ours. The fire from our mouths is when we lay down our lives in imitation of the one who laid his down for us. We lay down our lives as a witness to the one who did it first. The enemy will come, friends, to attack and overpower and kill. Revelation 2, right at the beginning again, it tells us what's going to happen. I know where you live. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. My faithful witnesses... There it is again. My faithful witnesses, you did it, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The enemy comes. The beast from the abyss will come. Overpower, attack, and kill. 
And we may live in shame and disgrace and be gloated over. But the church will stand to its feet and be raised to the clouds with him. See, his story is our story as we continue to live into the rhythm of this death and resurrection life. The world then will see the death and resurrection of Jesus lived out in our lives, and some will still reject it, but others will give glory to the God of heaven because that's what gets through to them. And this has never been more true than right now with, for our brothers and sisters in the churches in Afghanistan. Let's, uh, let's call the band up as we just reflect on this for a minute. The reports out of the underground church in Afghanistan are sobering. The Taliban have a hit list of known Christians that they are targeting. Many are fleeing to the nearby hills to seek refuge, yet many have chosen to stay to continue to advance the gospel. One senior editor of World Magazine, her name's Mindy Bliss, she writes this. A person who works with house church networks in Afghanistan reports its leaders received letters last night from the Taliban warning that they know where they are and that they know what they're doing. And these leaders say, we aren't going anywhere. And so she writes, and so it begins. I know where you live. I know what you're doing. But the leaders say they aren't going anywhere. And so she writes, and so it begins. It begins, and yet it's always been, hasn't it? Because the beast has always come to attack, overpower and kill. And their bodies will lie in shame and disgrace. And they will be gloated over. But the church will stand to its feet and be raised to the clouds with him. See, the world will see the death and resurrection of Jesus lived out in their lives. And some will still reject it, but others will give glory to the God of heaven because that's what gets through. And so what we're finding is that the Afghanistan church grows at a historic rate, second only to Iran, and it's unprecedented growth in that region. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is what gets through. It's not fire. And it's not plague. It's not drought. It's a church living into its identity as a people who follow Jesus to the cross. They're laying their lives down as a witness to the one who did it first. Now let me ask you one question. You likely will not be asked to die this day, or this week, or this season, and maybe, probably not even in your entire life. But where are you being asked to die to yourself to be a witness here? Because in our comfort and our security, that's the question we ask. 
Lord, you are not going to ask us likely, you are not going to ask us to be the ultimate witness. But where in your neighborhood, in your workspace, in that friend, is God saying, be a witness to me there. Lay down your life there. Die to yourself there. And then pray for the ones who are giving their actual life somewhere else for the greater witness for all of us.